today you're listening to season two, episode eight of the Simply 127 podcast. I really hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Raleigh Sadler. Raleigh spends his life fighting human trafficking. He wrote a book in 2019 entitled Vulnerable, Rethinking Human Trafficking. Without any further ado, I'm going to let him start our conversation. Well, my name is Raleigh Sadler, and I'm the executive director and founder of Let My People Go, which really was an interesting exercise in following following God and trying to listen to how God was leading me. And so it was interesting that growing up in church, I never really heard a focus where you saw the gospel as more than your entryway into heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, the gospel was there, but it was it it was more of, you know, pray this prayer, open the door of your heart. I see that hand, that kind of thing. <laughs> and and I'm not I'm not trying to say that this is like that any of the pastors I sat under were not qualified or they were awesome. But I felt like there was just this milieu of this is what Christianity is. Mm-hmm. And um, we weren't really mining the depths of the gospel. We weren't really depending. We were waiting for the the hereafter. And um, I think that's all too a familiar story for some people. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I think for me, it's like when when you when you believe like that it's super easy to compartmentalize your Christianity, right? It's super Mm. easy to compartmentalize the gospel. Yeah. It's the ABCs or like Tim Keller would say, it's not the ABCs. It's the A to Z. It's, it's the everything. It's not the starting blocks of the race. It's the entire track. It's air that you breathe. Mm -hmm. And, and so I'm not shocked that I grew up thinking that, if you focused on social causes, then you had lost sight of the gospel. Yeah. Because for me, the gospel was directly tied to its own proclamation. It wasn't necessarily tied to its demonstration. So now I see the gospel and I'm like, wow, we must proclaim it and demonstrate, declare and demonstrate. What does that look like? Um, for me, that ultimately looks like because I believe that Jesus lived, he died and he rose for me. Now I am free to stop focusing on myself so incessantly and I am free to focus on my neighbor. (laughs) And I don't have to get myself saved. The strength of my salvation is not in my own reception of it. The strength of my salvation is in the finished work of Jesus on my behalf. And it's like, it took me forever to figure that out. (laughs) I remember reading by a guy named Garrett Ferdy, he said, oftentimes when we view faith, we see it as a transactional, conditional decision. If I do Mm -hmm. this, then God will do this. He's Mm -hmm. like, but it's not that. It's a because, therefore. Because Christ died for us, therefore, we are made right with him. And then I realized, I'm a sinner. Christ died for sinners. So if that's true then that counts for me. And it changed everything. Huh. It changed everything for me. And then I started to notice my neighbor. I, I, I kind of like broke out of this insular understanding of myself and I started to 
look outside myself to other people. I took a couple of jobs and one of the jobs was in an orphanage. And I remember seeing these kids who had basically flunked out of the foster system because of nothing they did. They knew that they weren't a fit. They knew that some folks did not want them. And these kids like lived with this and they were, they were carrying burdens. They were never intended to bear. And I, I just remember, remember one of my coworkers looking at me and he said, you know, these kids are so vulnerable. What happens if someone tells one of these kids, I love you, like they'll hmm. do whatever the person says. And that, that stuck with me. And over time I, I got an offer to work in a collegiate ministry where I wanted to work. And it was at a historically black college and university in West Virginia. And it was there where I had a dean of the school who was also a pastor pull me aside. And he said to me, he said, I get that you proclaim the gospel and that's beautiful, but how do you demonstrate it? What does justice look like? What does mercy look like? How are you teaching in a way that impacts those who experienced systemic injustice. And he got me thinking um, along this, this road that I now find myself on. And so for me, it's always fun when you're talking about social causes and someone immediately says that you've lost sight of the gospel. And I'm thinking, nah, the gospel is <laughs> what got me here because it's what took me from looking inward to, to look outward. You know, it's um, Martin Luther talks about how sin has curved us in on ourselves. You know, where we are to love God and love neighbor, it kind of doesn't go up and out. It kind of goes up a little bit and comes right back in, you know, yeah. and it's just like. Um, so it wasn't shocking when I went to a collegiate ministry event called Passion, where they were talking about human trafficking. And I took my students. They were talking about like how we create demand for human trafficking. Christine Kane was speaking and it wasn't shocking to me when she basically was like, someone asked her, well, do we, do we create a demand? Yeah. And she said, yes, whether it's pornography you've consumed in your life or whatever, like, and it could be like pornography, it could be the food you eat, the clothes you wear. At some point, your unseen neighbor could have been exploited to provide the things that you desire. And at that moment, I remember just being crushed because I was like, wow, I had no idea vertical sins had horizontal ramifications. Mm. And I, I just said, I'm sorry for my part in this, God. I'm sorry. And then immediately after, I felt like I was supposed to do something. And it wasn't one of those hero things. It was more like, I'm supposed to do something. What does that mean? And I ran from it for a year. <laughs> and then life fell apart. And I finally realized I had an expiration date. I sold everything and I moved to New York to fight human trafficking, though I didn't even know what that meant. And in my seven years in New York, I would see Let My People Go Born, where I was working with local churches to empower them to fight human trafficking. I would, I would write a book called Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. And all because I was convicted of my, my own brokenness. I, and just seeing how as a broken person, I can love other broken people. And, um, yeah. yeah, I think, I think, I think that's been, that's been the way for me. I think you've left us a lot to unpack, but <laughs> I noticed on your bio, you said the gospel frees us to pursue justice and mercy in our community. So based on what you just shared, I would love for you just to kind of unpack that statement a little bit. Yeah, because with the gospel, you no longer have to do anything. 
And I know that that really frustrates people. And I know a lot of people are like, what do you mean though, man? You, you need to read the Bible. You need to be baptized. You need to, you know, fill in the blank. I think, honestly, when I look at the gospel, I realize, wow, everything's in Jesus for me. Like he has personified everything that I ever need to achieve, everything that I ever need to be to be right with God and my neighbor. So like if someone says, well, I really need victory over this, this, or this. When I look at that, I'm like, well, I, and I, for so many years have prayed, I need victory. I need victory. But it shifted for me when I started thinking, okay, but I have it though. Yeah. I have victory in Christ who lived, died, and rose on my behalf. So, so if I believe that I already have that victory, how can I walk in light of it? And it has been a game changer for me. And I think when we start to realize, I think when we, we get focused on doing rather than what was done, we, we have a hard time moving forward because we realize that we're not enough. We realize that our attempts are not enough mm-hmm. and they never will be, but his were. And so now I can love my neighbor without needing them to reciprocate the kindness. I can love my neighbor even if they don't really tell me how great I am or um, pad my ego or – I mean, I can, I can love my neighbor if they don't love me back. I can serve my neighbor if – even if they don't say, you know what, thank you for giving us this – this financial gift. Thank you so much. It really helped. I can love my neighbor if they, they use what I helped them with and they use it for wrong purposes. It's like, I'm free because I'm ultimately now giving to God, not, not that person, but I can also see how, yeah, grace is never wasted. It's, it, you know, I can, I may not understand it. I may not respond in kind to the grace God has given me, but it's going to shape me and it's going to change me. And so as someone who's been given to now I can give. And I think that's where, that's where this idea of grace freeing you to do something, because now I'm no longer under the weight of the law to do this and live. Now I'm alive. So I'm free to do. Yeah. It's a little shift, but it is has a big impact. Absolutely. Um, okay, so our our listeners know a, a little bit more about orphan care, and we use the terminology like working upstream to prevent orphans in the next generation. So I think some people are probably wondering, why is she inviting this founder of a human trafficking organization <laughs> to talk about um, orphans and widows and Obviously, vulnerable people is an easier connection, but I would love for you just to talk a little bit about the connection between orphans and um, people who are um, trafficked. Well, you know, I I would basically recall kind of the story I started sharing about working in St. Joseph's Orphanage in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I remember, I remember these kids, you know, they were you know, they, they had no one 
And many of them had experienced a lot of trauma, way more trauma than a, a nine-year-old should ever experience, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking these kids longed for acceptance and belonging and they'd never had it. All they knew was how to survive. They were survivors, but a lot of these kids didn't know how to be loved. They just didn't like they hadn't had it. And um, realizing that if human trafficking is the exploitation of vulnerability for commercial gain, which is how I would define it, just to be simple, um, if, if it's the ex- exploitation of vulnerability for commercial gain, then human traffickers are looking for those who are in isolation. They're looking for those who are in the margins. They're looking for those who are struggling. And it could be at-risk youth. Mm-hmm. It could be your immigrant neighbor. It could be your LGBTQ neighbor. It could be your neighbor living under a stigma. Traffickers do not care about political affiliation they love stigmas. They love things that are going to keep people from being accepted because then they can come in and be like, no, you're accepted here. And then they can groom that person into an exploitative relationship mm-hmm. that, oh, that solely benefits them. And so, um, so yeah, I would, I would look at that and I, w- I would say, you know, when we work with churches, we're trying to help them identify their most vulnerable neighbor, the population that is most vulnerable to exploitation, because that's who an exploiter or trafficker is going to target. And it could be, it could be those who are orphans in the community. It could be those who are new immigrants. It could be those who have been impacted by incarceration. And when we start really when we start kind of really diving into this, we start noticing that some people can be orphans because their parents were impacted by incarceration or um, functional orphans because they faced severe cyclical poverty or, you know, like a lot of these vulnerabilities will blend into each other. And, and I think that's, I think for us, for let my people go. That's, that's how we end up. That's how I end up on podcasts like yours, because <laughs> what we're doing kind of dovetails with a lot of things. Cause we're, we're looking at a broad picture of vulnerability and all of these other issues ultimately can feed into, they can almost be pipelines into and into human trafficking. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned, um, let my people go's relationship with the church. So I'd love just to hear a little bit more about that. Like what exactly you guys are doing your partnership together with churches. Another um, sentence I pulled that I was intrigued from your bio is that it's the church's responsibility to love those who are at risk of exploitation. And while I agree, I think that's not something we commonly see across churches in America, unfortunately. So I just love for you to talk a little bit more about your relationship with churches? Yeah, I think a lot of times churches, I'm going to speak from my own experience (laughs) in Christian ministry over the last 20 years. And so I won't put this on other people, but I will say there is a temptation to 
really just be so overwhelmed with the needs of your own community that you can grow insular rather than outwardly focused. Mm -hmm. I know for me, when I was a pastor, it was hard for me to think outwardly. I think churches as a whole, it's, it's very easy for us. And it might be an infrastructure situation, like to not focus on those most vulnerable, but I firmly believe that God has put our churches where they are on purpose. And there are vulnerable people in our community, and they oftentimes see a church as a safe place. Hmm. And we can look at the reports of church abuse and realize that's not always the case. But here's the problem. I would argue that a lot of churches are not ready and not prepared to love those most vulnerable. They are not. They say they are, but they're not. And um, because those most vulnerable don't always look the way that you want them to look. They don't always look Mm -hmm. like you. They don't always act like you. They don't always have your same um, affinities or vocabulary even. They may say words that you don't like. They may have habits that you don't love. You may not want your kids hanging out with them in a church parking lot. Yeah. But it's these people that God is calling us to love. And I've had, I had a pastor once tell me, because I was advocating how churches could love their neighbors who are experiencing homelessness. And he said, I got fired because of this. You do know that churches don't want that. And I don't think that's true in every case, but there is a reason that the mission of let my people go is to empower the local church to fight human trafficking, this mega issue by loving those most vulnerable Um, I firmly believe that God motivates the local church to love those most vulnerable by becoming vulnerable for us. And when we look at the local church, we realize our issues may be different, but we have a slew of vulnerabilities that we're trying to wrestle through. And so I think the key for the church is to think through what does it look like to understand our own vulnerabilities in a way where we can say, okay, I don't have it all together and neither does my neighbor. So how can I walk alongside them rather than in a paternal way, try to lift them up? How can we just go on this journey together? How can I learn from them as they learn from me? How can, how can we do this together? Because that vulnerable person in your community may hold the thing that you need to grow in grace. They may, they may hold the key. They may be able to speak truth into your life. And I'm not saying you, you use them for that. But I'm saying your neighbor needs to be part of your community. And, and I think when we, when we bring in our vulnerable neighbors into our church, yeah, it may not look like it used to look, but there will be a gospel dependence that you've never experienced Hmm. because now you're forced to get out of your ruts. Now you're forced to deal with people who have different life experiences and to actually get to know them. And you'll you'll start to see things unlocking in your life. And you'll start to see your own issues clearer than ever and your own need for the gospel. Yeah, we've actually realized something similar with 127 in that um, we had different lanes for people to get involved in caring for the vulnerable. But it's almost like we needed an on-ramp to even have some education and equipping and 
helping people understand, you know, what the Bible says about this and creating, um, I mean, education's the word in my mind of helping people understand why this is something that we need to be doing. And so it sounds like that's part of what you're doing. Are there educational tools or resources involved or like what would a typical partnership look like the first six months, let's say? Yeah. So historically, historically, let my people go, would go into churches, we would train and we would help the church in a way where we said, okay, we're going to help you develop a team. We're going to help that team do a community needs assessment. Then from their findings, and that's going to take three to six months, we can talk about what does it look like to create a congregational approach as well as a collaborative one in your community. So how do you preach and teach on the vulnerabilities that you discovered? Mm. How do you... How does this impact how you greet people? How does this impact, I mean, all the things, you know, like all the way down. How does your congregation identify, empower, protect, and include vulnerable people? But also, how do you collaborate with your, with the community stakeholders that are loving, hurting people? Like, so how do you collaborate with social services, local law enforcement, mm-hmm. local nonprofits? In the early church, it didn't have programs. And we look at like, the we look at the early church and we're like, wow, four thousand were being saved on this day, five thousand, seven thousand. Without Awanas, they could do that. Right. <laughs> and then how could you do it without Awanas? <laughs> and like I think I think the interesting thing there is when you look at them, all these people being saved, you know what they all had in common? Vulnerability. Hmm. They were all vulnerable. And it's just like they saw their need. And so, so I see a lot of churches, they'll have it programmed out. And what we're saying is we don't, we don't want that. We want to shift from the programs and we, we don't want to help you create a program. We want to help you create an approach. So Mm -hmm. we want to inject justice and mercy into everything you're already doing so that your church becomes a safe place. And what that means is rather than your church recreating a Christian version of something that's already out there, we're saying, who are the stakeholders in your community and how can you collaborate with them? Because you can offer something they can't. Hmm. You can offer a spiritual community that is dedicated to seeing this person thrive. They're no longer in isolation. They can be part of a family. And now this family can protect them spiritually and physically, but there are some needs that this family can't meet. And that's where we collaborate with other organizations. I think we we are going to have some people listening who are maybe just, um, I guess the question would be like, what kind of advice or encouragement would you give for someone who's just kind of been made aware of um, this idea of human trafficking, vulnerable people? Like what would be some first steps? And then also what ways can they get involved with you and let my people go? Um, let's say they're not pastors or on a church staff. What are some other ways that people can join you? Absolutely. Um, I actually was made fun of this on a, a panel that I was on recently where the person's like, well, what can you do to fight human trafficking? And I said, well, ultimately we can learn more about it. And this is how we can learn. We can read books. We can, <laughs> we can Google. And then I just kind of moved on. I didn't talk about the fact that I wrote a book. <laughs> Because 
it still feels weird to say, well, one great book to help you address <laughs> human trafficking is vulnerable rethinking human trafficking. But yeah, give yourself a little shout out. We'll put it in the show notes so people right? can buy I your mean, book. I mean, that's why I wrote the book, right? And, and what's funny about it is, and I love this. It's like my my um, calling began when Christine Kane, who is a noted anti-trafficking, um, I don't want to say figurehead, but personality, mm-hmm. and doing a lot of work through A21. She's written a lot of books. Yeah, but, and she's feisty too. And she is feisty. And <laughs> what was interesting was she actually lended a quote for the cover of the book. And she said, this is, this is the book about human trafficking that I've been looking for. And for me, that was like full circle that Christine Kane would say that. Yeah. And um, especially with how this started for me. And so I think I, I wrote this book for people of faith who were trying to think through what does it look like for me to fight human trafficking? And I just kind of walked through an approach. And then at the very end of the book, I, I list a hundred ways that you can fight human trafficking today. And so, so that I, would be the advice you would give a new person to buy your book yeah, and learn a hundred ways. Yeah, that's that's one way to do it. <laughs> Another way would be, you know, yeah, just put the human trafficking hotline number in your phone, which is one eight 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 three seven three seven eight eight eight. The human trafficking hotline is a great resource if you want to learn about human trafficking. <laughs> As well as if you think you see it, you can call. And if you have actionable intelligence, you can tell them, hey, I noticed this, this, and this. It happened here, here, and here. Here's the frequency. Another thing is to actually learn the definition of human trafficking. Like for severe types of human trafficking, like sex trafficking, where someone can be forced into prostitution, or they're forced into webcams or pornography, or or labor trafficking where they're not paid fair wages and their documents have been held from them and they are working in fields or the hospitality industry yeah, or, you know, domestic, domestic servitude where someone could be a nanny, butler, maid, that kind of thing. <clears throat> we need to think through, if human trafficking is the exploitation of vulnerability for commercial gain, then exploitation exploitation can often look like forced fraud and coercion. And so learning how to identify that. And so I would just say, read well, watch good documentaries, uh, check out the National Human Trafficking Hotline, um, Follow organizations like Let My People Go or International Justice Mission or um, Shared Hope or National Center on Sexual Exploitation, um, Nicosi, or the Polaris Project. Follow them and learn more. And I would say start there. I think... For, for all of us, it's very easy for us to think that there's nothing that we can do. You know, we, we look at 
the fact that over 40 million people are impacted by human trafficking around the world right now and and maybe even more um and we look at this and we're like we a lot of us can see this and we can just freeze because Mm -hmm. what can i do but then a lot of us we'll do the first thing that comes to mind, which is generally the worst thing. You know, it's the, I'm going to go dive into a massage parlor and set the people free, even though I don't actually know that it's illicit massage parlor, (laughs) that it's an illicit massage parlor. Like, yeah, that's a good piece of advice. Don't do the first thing that comes to mind. Usually. (laughs) And and I think our goal here is not to do everything, but it's to do something. Mm -hmm. And so what does it look like for us to do something? And I think, Start small. Start with those most vulnerable around you. Um, recognize your own vulnerabilities. And allow God to lead you to those who he's already working in. Because God's already working amongst those most vulnerable. Hmm. He's just inviting us to join him. And yeah. so so allow him to do that and then see where that goes. Just do something, though. Don't try to do everything. Yeah. Don't be a one-stop shop. Just <laughs> Just be there. Well, great. Just be present. I mean, all this is great information. We'll put a lot of those links in the show notes that you mentioned. And I just want to thank you for what you're doing, just for your time this morning. And um, if there's any way that we can work together, I would love to, to chat more about that as well. Absolutely. Thanks, Raleigh. Thank you. Allow God to lead you to where He's already working to care for the vulnerable. I know that's something we talk about at 127 Worldwide, but I just think there's so much wisdom in that, and we need to hear those words more, and we need to act on those words more. So thank you so much for tuning in today. Just a couple of things. Um, The ministry website for Raleigh is lmpg.org for Let My People Go. And then the name of his book, which I actually bought over the weekend on Amazon, is Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. So make sure you tune in next week. We have Jason Johnson from Christian Alliance for Orphans, and I'm really excited about our conversation as well. And just thank you so much for continuing to listen.